From the Emmy Award-winning Cape Cod Community Media Center, this is Hit and Run History. Hello, I'm Andrew Buckley, creator and host of Hit and Run History. Welcome to our podcast for the week of February 6, 2013, the Kachupa edition. This week's show has three chapters. First, National Geographic explores why we explore in its January issue. Second, Cape Verde, the tiny crossroads of the world. Barbara Berger will be joining us to talk about the Creole nation that few outside of New England know about. And third, Barbara's brought a trademark dish of Cape Verdean cuisine, cachupa. It's emblematic of the country, and we cannot wait to try some. Then we'll round up with uh, recommendations and something new or overlooked about history that we'd like to share. Joining me in the studio are audio producer Jay Sheehan and video producer Jamie Horton. Guys, say hello. 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 (laughs) And uh, also joining me uh, remotely is uh, Bonnie Hurd-Smith. She writes, publishes, and speaks about history, especially women's history, uh, from Boston's North Shore, where she also runs a PR and marketing company called History Smiths. Welcome, Bonnie. Happy to be here, but I wish I were there live because you're going to have good food, and I'm going to miss it. Well, absolutely. Well, um, well I guess we'll get right into it. Um, the January issue of um, National Geographic, uh, the 125th anniversary special issue, as they're calling it, um, is features why we explore, and among many other uh, topics that they have, uh, including uh, microbiology or um, exp- exploration of space, uh, and one of the many doomed Antarctic uh, exploration missions from 100 years ago, uh, is a really great article that deals less with the uh, who, when, or where of exploration. It's, a, it's more dealing with the why. And uh, it, this article that starts off actually at the very beginning called Restless Genes uh, talks yeah. about that in uh, some great detail. One of the things that I've been thinking about is um, reminding me that a decade ago, um, the news was going around about an adventurer gene and it made a lot of headlines, a variant of dopamine that's in one out of every five humans. Individuals were more willing to take risks and to be curious and on, act upon that curiosity to move beyond places of abundance uh, to find out what lay around the next corner. In the article, it says specifically, researchers have repeatedly tied the variant known as DRD4-7R and carried by roughly 20% of all humans to curiosity and restlessness. Dozens of human studies have found that the 7R makes people more likely to take risks, explore new places, ideas, foods, relationships, drugs, or sexual opportunities, and generally embrace movement, change, and adventure. Studies in animals simulating 7R's actions suggest it increases their taste for both movement and novelty. Uh, Not to be uh, confused with the closely associated ADHD. It's it's very interesting because what it says is that this variant is not universally spread uh, or evenly distributed amongst populations, but instead happens to represent itself in migratory societies. So you would expect that people who were really curious about what was over the next hill would be people who were displaying this variant. Um, On the other hand, it also says that people who um, have this uh, variant but are in staid, stable societies tend not to do as well because they're risk takers. That's not what you want in a stable society, but it is the people that you want out on the frontier. And when you have a migratory population, risk taking is rewarded, uh, well, you're either killed <laughs> or, or you, you know, the, the adventure doesn't work out, or more importantly, um, you thrive. And so that is rewarded. And, by, and you know, just like everything else in human populations and in animal populations, if you thrive, you spread that variant uh, as broadly as you can. So you can imagine certain populations uh, in the world have it overrepresented, and certain other populations have it underrepresented. Now, I took this one step further, and I was thinking about in history itself. Originally, I thought for this topic we'd be talking about explorers and what it means to be an explorer. And by National Geographic standards, it could be 
any number of different things. Uh, space exploration uh, or Thor Heyerdahl, you know, taking the Contiki across the Pacific, but, uh, or microbiology or even you know, being a musician, an artist or what have you. Um, however, in this particular case, getting into the why is even more interesting when you look at people in history um, who may or may not have been displaying this. But Bonnie, I just I wanted to uh, get your take yeah, on uh, this. I, I was, I, thank you, I was about to interrupt you because I, I need to ask you a question and I wonder if this applies because so much of the history that I study, whether it's women's history, African-American history, Native American history, involves people who are just so courageous and I'm thinking, right now about the abolitionists, because this has just been on PBS, but in your mind, are we talking about the same thing? Because it, it's one thing to have this restless gene and need to explore wherever it is. But for me, I mean, you think about John Brown, I mean, talk about exploring the unexplored and taking on so much and, and completely changing the world as a result. And these other abolitionists and suffragists and, and other people like that then and now, but we're talking about history. Do you see a connection there? Well, I, you know, I, I think if you look at the, you know, the population of the early republic, um, you're talking about one or two generations removed from people who were uh, had gotten on a boat with uh, you know their family and all their possessions in the world and left a settled society to go and make their way on a in an unknown land, and then their children were carving something out of the wilderness as well. So you got to imagine that the um, that the population, the early population of what was the United States. Uh, or just prior to its founding, was uh, self-selecting for this gene, uh, for this mm. variant of this gene. So you've got, you know, the people who don't take risks are not leaving Ireland. They're not leaving England. They're not leaving uh, France or any place else. They're sticking close to what's safe. And so you've got that. And so if you, if you then are looking at a couple generations removed from that, uh, or one or two, and the you know the time of the 1820s, 1830s, 1840s, uh, you probably have that o represented in Ohio, and uh, you know places that were just recently recently settled, really. So um, it's it's quite possible that you've got people who are just naturally predisposed to risk taking. But certainly Brown, <laughs> Brown, if not <laughs> if not possibly mentally ill, then <laughs> that could be that's a totally oh. different thing altogether. <laughs> um, but uh, he, um, he certainly would be displaying it, but any one of these people who took a courageous act, um, you know, uh, I think it was um, Domke who uh, came up from uh, South Carolina and again threw away everything that she had because she, she was doing this on principle. And again, that was something, she was doing something new. She, was, uh, she wasn't necessarily trying to seek adventure, but she was certainly driven by the, you know, the spirit somehow, and that, you know, that spirit could also have been represented by being predisposed genetically to uh, to taking that risk, and uh, so I mean I I looked at that and I, you know, it's funny because I was looking at um, the, the 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 converse, uh, thinking about people who had spent their entire lives preparing for something in an institution, but when things started going haywire, are failures, they fail yeah. to thrive. You take somebody like say George B. McClellan. Um, you know, he, he, he made, uh, you know, the, the army of, uh, of, the to of the Potomac for the Union Army um, into a great, great organization. But he was so risk averse, he would, he hated putting those troops into battle. He was an awful field commander. And finally, he got removed uh, by Lincoln and was eventually replaced by a guy who started off the war who was... Uh, had resigned his commission from the army and was working in his, his younger brother's uh, tannery and leather shop, which is Ulysses S. Grant, a guy who, you right. know, when things were normal, couldn't thrive. But when it was time to take risks and to, you know, take the casualties that just had to be done, it was uh, Ulysses S. Grant and William Tecumseh Sherman, who's even more, uh, you know, uh, uh, exceptional, 
um, to be able to take risks when it was when it was necessary to be able to do those things, and uh, and then when Grant becomes president, uh, you know it, it ends eventually after his two terms. It just ends badly for him. And mm -hmm. uh, if he didn't write his, you know, he, and he uh, raced to um, write his memoirs so that his uh, family wouldn't be penniless. So the thing is, you've got people who thrive under certain, uh, you know, in chaos. And, uh, but they can't do well during normal times. And you've got the people who um, do very well during normal times but cannot adjust to it. And so I'm thinking about all the different people in, in, through history that you can think about who, who represent both camps. And mm. I, so, uh, and, mm. the, and the abolitionists, I, I, you know, it's, it's funny. We were talking about them on our last podcast. And, uh, but that didn't strike me because, I mean, the ones that I was thinking about, I mean, it's easy to think about in the military because you can, you can assess what risk is and when someone acts well upon it or not. Um, I was thinking of Winston Churchill. You know, those people mm -hmm. that come to the fore during times of crisis, like, boy, thank God we had somebody like that, whoever that was, uh, in that period of crisis. And the other times that you say, you know, there was a person here who was great for good times, but, uh, you know, uh, Herbert Hoover would have been a great, you know, uh, great president during a time of prosperity. Unfortunately, he was president during a time of economic chaos. And so, you know, and, and was the worst person for the job at the time. I, I tend to study people who were sort of the right person in the right place at the right time and who had the guts to stand up and do what they did. And I, I'm just fascinated, and, and, and I love this article because I've long been fascinated by where does that come from? Now, in many cases, in the people I've studied, and they tend to be women people, um, a lot of that comes from their faith. And I get into that in my new book. <laughs> but a lot yeah. of it comes from their faith without knowing about this whole genetic understanding that that this National Geographic article gets at, but um, I, you know, you you mentioned the early early colonists, and so I of course think of Anne Bradstreet, mm. who came over with the Arbella fleet, and she was she and her husband and father minor nobility, and. She was well-educated, and they lived a very lovely, luxurious life, and they came over to nothing. <laughs> and the Arbella fleet, as we know, they first, I mean, every town has to claim that the Arbella fleet was there, but they first moored off the coast of Manchester by the sea. They didn't go on land. They then went to Salem, went on land, saw that everybody was starving and sick and dying or dead. And they said, no, we're not going to do this. They then went to Charlestown, spent a horrible year, horrible year without enough shelter, food, anything. Then some of them settled in Boston. Some of them went to Newtown, what is now Cambridge. Uh, but Anne is basically following her husband, Simon. And so they were in Cambridge for a little while, and then Simon decided he wanted to go to Ipswich to spread Christianity. So they go to Ipswich. Mm. Then they were there for a number of years. She had more kids. Meanwhile, she's writing poetry. I don't know how. And it's political poetry. She's about to become the voice of New England in old England, and she's about to become the first published American poet. But Simon, then they've been in Ipswich for a while, and he wants to move on to yet another on, frontier yeah. town, which is now North Andover. So, you know, where where does that come from? She's not the kind. I, when I say she followed him, that that's not quite fair. I mean, she was certainly part of this. They they were partners in this. But so I'm always interested in what motivates people to leave England and come over here to nothing yeah. and to forge what they did. And then in the 18th century, where I spend a whole lot of my time working on Judith Sargent Murray and, and other people, there's the Revolutionary War. But then after the war, when we are all deciding what kind of a country is this going to be, and you've got Abigail Adams, just well. That's that's who I was thinking about because she she yeah, you've got no. you've got people who are they seem to be you know Renaissance 
people. They they are uh, at at our very beginning. Yeah. These are these are not only people who are risk takers, but right. they're people who just seem to have. They're interested in so many different things, and they're well, they're, they're they're big thinkers, right? They're big thinkers. They're citizens of the world, and they think of themselves this way. But the thing about Abigail Adams and Abigail Adams asked John to quote unquote remember the ladies in a mm. in a private letter. They did not know that those letters would be published and made public and that we would all be reading them. Judith Sargent Murray claimed equality for women in the pub, quote unquote public prints in published essays. And anyway, it was a very, as you know, because this is your era too, it's a very optimistic time. What kind of country are we forging here? Who was a citizen? Um, very exciting stuff. And the people, especially for me, the women people, because in the 18th century, women were not allowed to speak in public. So the only way that you could have a voice was through your writing. So the women who stepped up to the plate and wrote politically, as Judith Sargent Murray did, as Mercy Otis Warren did, others as well, just extremely courageous. And as I say in my talks on Judith, she was from a very wealthy family, as a lot of these women were. Didn't really have to do anything except get married and have kids and hold tea parties. I mean, really. Mm. Why did she do what she did? And people ask me this all the time, and I have certain answers to that question, but I, yeah. well, well, I, I don't know. In, in the 19th century, and the Park Service is really good about talking about the two revolutions, especially if you go to Concord, where the two revolutions that came out of Concord are so present. One is, of course, the Revolutionary War, the American Revolution, it's military, it's ideological, whatever. Second revolution is when you get the next generation, you get Emerson, Alcott's, Fuller, all these people who dared to apply the ideals of the Constitution and the Declaration to everyone. Right. Well, we 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 were looking. Um, I remember the last time when we were talking about the abolitionists. Is is that it's possibly the uh, uh, you know the affluence that is there as well is that you're now comfortable enough. You're not fighting for survival. Um, but again, you've got people who are leaving comfort and and making trouble. Uh, so to speak, upsetting the apple cart, and um, you know, eventually that leads to you know, the American Revolution. Uh, sorry, the American Civil War, and uh, and then and then further on with the um, the whole Progressive Era. This is something that is fertile ground for all sorts of wonderful idle speculation as to um, who was a who was a mutant and who wasn't um, in, in history. Um, but uh, I think we're going to invite viewers uh, and listeners to uh, go to our Facebook page and um, uh, post there, uh, facebook.com slash hit and run history, and uh, make your nominations for people that you think were, uh, would fall into uh, either one of those camps, the 80% that uh, likes things the way they are and uh, thrives uh, in a situation like that, and, uh, and the 20% of the, uh, the troublemakers. And uh, so we'd appreciate that. Do you have a business and would like to get the attention of the smartest, hippest, and most educated audience? Then why not become a sponsor of this podcast? Get in on the ground floor and snag this precious spot right here. We could be talking about your business right now to a global audience. Just drop us a line at podcast at hitandrunhistory.com, tweet us at hitrunhistory, or message us through our Facebook page at facebook.com slash hitandrunhistory. Are you a literary agent? publisher's press representative, author, or history columnist? We'd love to hear from you. Give us a heads up on what you've got coming out. We're happy to program the most engaging and erudite guests. And if you're a fan of history and have an idea for something we could talk about, feel free to send us a note. Find us at facebook.com slash hitandrunhistory and let us know. Or tweet us at hitrunhistory. Or regular email at podcast at hitandrunhistory.com. If we use your idea, we'll mention you on the show. I should add, we're also looking for terrestrial radio partners. So if you have a favorite station, send them the link and ask them to consider carrying us. Topic two, Cape Verde. In November of 1787, the Columbia expedition sighted the island of Mayo, 300 miles west of Africa. 40 days out from Boston on their round-the-world voyage, the ship Columbia and the sloop Washington rendezvoused here before the long journey through the South Atlantic to Cape Horn. 
The archipelago of Cape Verde, a collection of volcanic islands, was then a Portuguese colony populated by a collection of settlers, Jews fleeing the Inquisition, freed blacks and, American, and African slaves. Uh, in 2009, as part of our documentary series, we followed Captain Kendrick and the men of the Columbia to Cape Verde. Uh, at the time, it was experiencing very, its very first dengue fever outbreak, and this desert island nation, where it may not, have, may not rain for years, was suffering from this mosquito-borne illness. Despite the situation, we were able to visit the islands of Mayo, Fogo, and Santiago. We found that each island's culture was as unique as its topography. We also found a great connection to the United States. Uh, you know, we're recording here on Cape Cod, and we know Cape Verdeans have been around here for centuries now, um, and first brought back as crewmen aboard our local whale ships. For help with understanding Cape Verde's history, and especially its diaspora, we've invited Barbara Burgo to come and talk with us. Um, Barbara, before we get into the history um, that's more local to people in this room, um, what can you tell me about the, you know, the early beginnings of Cape Verde? Okay, thank you. Um, I'm telling you that so much of history is now being re-explored, if you will. People tell me you can't, um, you can't change history. We're trying to get all the documentation correct in mm. Cape Verde. Back in the early days, as you know, um, many of the documentation wasn't as correct as we would like. But I, I was taught by uh, Dr. Richard Loban, who wrote a book, and I got some of the information from his book, um, the Historical um, doc Dictionary of the Republic of Cape Verde, he and Mountain uh, Lopes wrote it. Um, with that information, around between 1455 to 1456, it, we know that Antonio de Noli discovered Cape Verde with um, uh, someone, uh, Diego um, Alfonso, um, Diego Gomes, and we know that before then there was some some population on Cape Verde, hmm. some visitation to Cape Verde, I should say, because mostly it wasn't populated. So the mid 1400s, um, the the Italians sent by the Portuguese discovered the archipelago. Right. Okay, and so. We are very interested to find out um, the islands somewhat were named after, like Mayo, you heard. Mm -hmm. So it was said to have been discovered the 1st of May. So they. Mayo, May. Mayo, so May. Um, Fogo, um, they tell me it, it was, um, it, it, it seems to be, it was called San Felipe at first. Uh, part of it was, mm -hmm. it was named that, um, but because of the volcanic nature of the volcano that they could see. It looked like fire, so people would call it a fogo. Right. And it started much of a, a conglomeration of, of African um, slaves uh, with the Portuguese mm -hmm. who were sent there, maybe like a penal colony or something. But um, I heard you talking earlier about how people just survived. Survival was important because the islands, what I start say to the, the children that we help educate, the islands, um, I liken them to Hawaii, but without the rain. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, that, well, I mean, they are, they are volcanic. When, when we were there, it, it's very interesting because they're so differently shaped. Mayo, which is shaped for, both from profile and if you look at it from a map, from space, it's like a pancake and it's very flat and, uh, and very dry and it's the easternmost of the islands, the closest to Africa. Um, and, then, uh, and then Fogo is, is like a pyramid because it's just one big volcano coming right out of the uh, right out of the ocean, and uh, and so I, when we landed there, um, uh, our plane I was I was waiting for the plane and the landing strip to become flat, and it never really felt that way even when we landed that the plane was probably tilting just a little bit because I, I'm not sure there's any flat ground except when you're in the middle of the, the caldera of the volcano itself, way up at the top. Um, and, then, and, then, uh, and then Santiago itself, the, the, the biggest island and where the, the capital is, Praia, um, is, it's very dry, it's mountainous, and uh, we, we described it as um, looking like Monster Island from uh, the old Japanese mm. monster movies because it just looked, it, it was kind of creepy and hazy and such. But it, again, yeah, it was all, all very dry. Fogo being a little bit more, um, 
more humid, but I think that's simply because the volcano actually acts as a sail and, and catches some of the clouds in it. Mm -hmm. um, when I first went there, I was a student again at Rhode Island College, and it was 1997. We had a summer seminar abroad, so I went in and with a, a group of students from um, from a couple of other colleges, URI in Wheaton and, and, and somewhere else. And back then, South African Airways, the big double uh, tier jum jumbo jet, it would stop in Sal on the way to Johannesburg. Mm. And you're talking about flat. Um, the island of Sal had the longest, flattest mm -hmm. runway space to be able to, 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 to land. land that kind of an airplane. But you're absolutely right. Much of it, not only the, the topography, but the um, Brava you still can't really fly the smaller planes into the larger planes into Brava. The, the elevation, the height, the winds, um, it, it's been tried a couple of times and, and we've lost planes and pilots because of that. So yes, it's so uniquely different yeah, from island to island. I remember when we were heading over there and trying to figure out if we could you know, get a, someone to come along as a translator and that the dialect uh, of, and it's, it's not Portuguese that they speak, although they speak, it has two official languages. One is um, Portuguese and the other is oh, Creole. Creole, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and yeah, and uh, and so, but th there's variation between the islands, and there's not. I mean, you can imagine that because there's a little geographic isolation between each one of the islands, but also the the diversity between each island is very interesting that we saw because for the the further west you go, the more European it the the people appear. Um, but when we were in Mayo, it is, first of all, very quiet. Um, mm -hmm. Not too many people on this, this very dry little island, but it's very felt much more African to us. But we know that a lot of the whalers, for example, um, that were so prized by American whale ship captains, those, those men came out of typically Brava and, uh, and such. And, so, um, and that may be because the, there were, the whales were closer over there, but it was just a very interesting sort of thing to be able to see how things change between each island itself. Mm -hmm. I don't think it was so much that the whales were closer in, in Brava. What I'm told is the Portuguese settled on Brava more than the other islands in, in the beginning, given again the, um, the climate. Mm -hmm. So Brava had a little more um, foliage than, than most of them and that's why they call it the beautiful island of Brava. You'd get the mm -hmm. flowers and you'd get the foliage, um, the elevation, a little more moisture from the cloud, a little more dampness, okay? And so it was easier for them to grow crops, for them to live. So a lot of it is, you were talking earlier about um, just navigating and, and having it in your blood. These folks had survival in their blood. Mm. So wherever they could survive, and you said the island looked kind of monstrous, while to, to some of us, that went over there. My 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 um, first my BA was cultural anthropology. I was amazed at seeing the terracing and the way that they would mm. just line up their crops and, and how they one uh, on Fogo up in the mountain up at the volcano. We we got grapes growing right out of the lava rock. I've got a picture of that. That I'm amazed at the the. Um, the coloration, the contrast between the green, thick grapes and volcano. It, it's amazing. When, when we were there, we were noticing that, you know, in, in certain areas where there was a kind of like a, a dry wash or in some sort of gorge, there would be, look, we'd look down from these very dry plains and see, you know, this, this little canyon. And uh, deep inside the canyon, it was green. And uh, that's where they were growing the sugar cane. And right next to it was a place that they were um, distilling grog. And that, that is, that is, the, that is the, the winery too, right? Um, there was a winery up in the volcano. Yeah, yeah, when we were up in the volcano in the middle of Fogo, there, there, were, there was a vineyard, vineyards along the sides and around the volcano itself. Right. And there was a winery inside the volcano, right next to a school and, uh, and, and a couple other things. But... Um, you know, I mean, it was only, it was 1995 that I think the volcano last erupted, so so it's probably safe to build a kind school. Safe, yeah. <laughs> well, I guess if you're <laughs> drinking enough wine, anything seems like a good idea. <laughs> yeah, maybe they're drinking too much of the wine. Yeah. So, but, uh, but, and, but, and we had the, the, the grog, and, and that was, that was, 
it's it's not rum. <laughs> it's, it's something a little less refined than that. Well, we, we had followed our story there because um, the Columbia stopped there. Uh, apparently, they needed to shift things around, and um, we suppose that they didn't go to islands further north that might be better supplied or such because uh, pirates were an issue at that particular time. But that far south, the, uh, the Barbary pirates weren't operating. Um, it's funny to go to a desert island and say that you're going to get water there, and it was quite a process to be able to do that. But we know that they had been going, just years before, going through a horrible drought. Um, I mean, sometimes there would be whole years that there wouldn't be any rain at all. And so you imagine you get very efficient with your water uh, under those circumstances. You do. They did. And, and that's, I took another picture of the island of Santiago, as you, you mentioned. To me, it was more... I want to say Africanized. There's a mix of everyone, mm -hmm. but I could see that 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 flair. However, up on on in Praia, the capital, up on the plaza, I remember the first time going and seeing the mixture of not only the African flavor, but also, of course, the um, the Portuguese, the ceramic, the tile, yeah. and there was a fountain. Um, my home was. Taunton, and we have the beautiful fountains in the middle of the, the green, the plaza. And I had to take the picture and bring it back. And I, I, I give that presentation to folks all the time. And I say, this looks something similar to early New England, but what's missing? And the fountain is dry. There is no stream of water that's yeah. coming out and making the beautiful colors, you know, the light colors dance around. Um, and, and I talked to um, the mayor, the camera in, in Fogo, and he said at one point in time, they went something like 15 years without 15 inches of rain. Um, so when the Cabernians were, were drafted from the Portuguese to come this way, not only as good navigators, because they could help them get through the rock and, 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 and such, at the archipelago, with, with with Brava, what they say to be in Fogo, um, much of the the navigation and the um, the peoples that were there, the education was a little better on those islands because they would be used as the Portuguese housekeepers, and, and mm -hmm. so yes, they came here for because they had lost something like one quarter of the population in Cape Bird. Yeah, it was, it was that, yeah, thousands and thousands of thousands people and died, thousands. and it really wasn't, you know, it was, it was used as an entrepot for the Portuguese because it was close to where, the, where they got slaves from in Africa, and then they would figure out what to do with them in this particular spot, and then they would either be sent off to Brazil or you know, other places like that. And at the same time, ships uh, that were traveling to China and back again, or, mm -hmm. or where, wherever, uh, would be able to, you know, would stop there. And it was certainly a very popular place for the sailors to be right. able to go, and, and, uh, and right. Columbia stayed there for, it should have been a week, but they were there a month. And uh, you, know, you can imagine as well that with all those sailors coming in and out as well, you got an even more mixed um, population mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. um, you said figure out what to do with them. Mainly it would be that that if they were taking, when they were taking slaves from Africa, and don't forget um, Cape Verde was, was an excellent stopping point coming to America. Mm -hmm. I heard you mention the Browns, and we know there was, you know, Atlantic slave trade and some of the, the, the trades that, that, that were going there in uh, Rhode Island is, is famous for the populations that were, believe it or not, some, a lot of them were, were slaves coming from wherever, mm -hmm. but they were kind of, um, I don't want to use the word civilized because I don't want to sound like they were uncivilized, but it was made in, in their minds. Um, the people that they were bringing into Cape Verde were made ready for mm. American, Brazilian, you know, the other cultures they were going for. Not only learning a little bit of the skills that they wanted them to learn, but um, taking away some of the, the what they thought would be the diseases that they might be bringing in, or if they were very, very sick, getting them healthy to move on and be able to sell them. with. Yeah. Well, the, the, the other thing that we know is that, of course, the first free blacks to come to the United States were coming into New Bedford especially, and those were Cape Verdeans who were getting off of uh, whale ships 
um, you know, with, with their earnings and mm -hmm. deciding to settle there as well. This is so interesting. I wrote, I have been taking notes and I wrote down two things that your guest said that really struck me. And one quote was, you can't change history, except, I mean, you can't change what happened. But what's so important about what both of you do and what so many people that we know do is to correct the documentation, to correct the story that was mm -hmm. told incorrectly. And I just admire that so much. So, you no, you can't change history, but you can certainly change the story, how it's told. The other quote that I wrote down was, these folks have survival in their blood. What a great quote. What a great quote. So, no, I have not run into this from the North Shore. Maybe I should have. But there are, there are other areas around, um, certainly, you know, New Bedford and Taunton and, and Fall River and, and certainly uh, well represented in Rhode Island as well and here on the Cape and the uh, um, on Cape Cod. And, um, you know, and then, and then we get into all the rest. I wish we could um, spend some more time talking about the, the diaspora, but the one thing I wanted to um, see if we could segue into is uh, you brought something uh, to, to, for us to be able to try, a kind of signature dish that maybe represents the stew that is um, Cape Verde. Like a bean soup. It's called, well, now we're saying the words cachupa. Many of the old Cape Verdeans, the old guard, when I was growing up, of course, a little more European, Portuguese kind of thing, because that's we were known as Portuguese. So um, I thank you for, for liking the quote um, that I've, I've mentioned, um, and I wish I, we could meet up um, rather than you just being on Skype, ma'am. But um, there's, a, there's a restaurant called Cesardia's up in, in Cambridge, and they sell cachupa. Uh, we used to call it manchup. Manchup, okay? Okay, where in Cambridge we need to know this? Yeah, we'll, you know, <laughs> we'll, 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 post, we'll post this information on our Facebook page. And you, you remember okay. Cesaria Evera, so it was it like oh, Cesaria, remember? Okay. And unfortunately we lost Cesaria last year, so she actually uh, sang at the Berkeley. There are many, many Cape Verdeans. Um, you mentioned something about um, the, the different uh, flair of us, and actually what, what you mentioned was that... Um, we are, they're citizens of the world, I heard that, and that's actually what Ambassador Fatima Vega said. The reason that, that, that so many Cape Verdeans are, are not recognized is we look like so many different folks. So we mm -hmm. talked about the, the, the Denoli, and so Italians and, and French and, and, you know, the pirates and, mm -hmm. and the Portuguese. And when I go to Florida, I'm asked if I'm Spanish. I have a, a few freckles on me, so some mm -hmm. folks think I might be a little bit Haitian. Oh, when I go down south, they think I am a black woman, but a different kind of black woman with something else there. Mm -hmm. So there's a gentleman that, that's a friend of mine, Casey in Taunton. There's a lot of, uh, of Asians now, a lot of Chinese in Cape Verde, as mm -hmm. you mentioned. So his, his, his heritage is Chinese, I mean, I'm sorry, Japanese and Irish and Cape Verdean from his grandfather. So he looks, you know. I'd love to see his DNA results. <laughs> Where are his genes coming from? And so what, what, what I say to the students, next week we're going to go to the students in Howard, and, and we say to them is, what is a Cape Verdean? And we can stand, we can have some folks stand up, and some kids in the class are blonde-haired and blue-eyed and, and dark eyes like I am, medium tone like I am, and very, very dark. And the ambassador just said, Cape Verdeans are citizens of the world. Yep. We are everywhere. Yep. So yep. back to the, the, the soup, this is, this is the bean soup that comes from Samp. So the Samp comes from Africa. There was one time when we were told not to say we were from Africa, not to say we were black. Well, America, because of racism that we know, not to even say we had slaves or were slaves or anything about mm -hmm. the slaves. Now it's just part of history, but if we tell it with the great pride that we're supposed to have with, with our historical roots. Yes, my DNA was the longest strain. I have done my DNA. And it's the longest strain of the 42 in the classroom that we did. Mm -hmm. And I, I found out where, where I came from in middle of Africa, where that stamp comes from, from the, the cachupa. Mm -hmm. And it's made with some, um, I, I, we put large lime beans and um, usually it's a, it's a, I use a smoked shoulder like a, a, a ham 
bone kind of mm -hmm. thing with a little bit of meat in it. When you were in Cape Verde, you probably had maybe some kale, some green in it, maybe some yeah. some carrots or whatever. But it was a nice hearty soup. You cook it for three or four hours and, and season it well. And it was not only, you know, fortitude, but um, but it's a filler. Yeah, it's something that, 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 that sticks to your ribs. It does. And, uh, and you know, and those are usually the best foods and they're the signature dishes of any of any culture out there is the sort of the, the, the comfort food as well. So uh, actually, can we uh, try it out? We can. For amusement's sake, I'm basically vegetarian slash vegan, but man, we there are times when you, you need protein. Oh, yeah. I, you know, lots of protein, lots of um, the kinds of things that you're cooking there right now that I'm not there to partake in. As I say to friends, jokingly, we didn't win here in America. We didn't win the West by eating salad. So... <laughs> <laughs> we did. My daughter was um, basically a vegetarian from age 10 to 30, um, uh, but in the Cape Verdean culture, it would be very difficult to be vegetarian. Manguisa um, mm. is another mainstay yeah. of ours that yeah. you know here. Sure. And most yeah. of our foods, as you know, like this, come. Yeah. Well, let's see. I'm going to give it a try. Looks good. Mm. Oh, yeah. Spicy? Yep. Mm -mm. Oh, good. All right. No, 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 no. no. I can eat it then. Okay, please describe because I'm eating okay. vicariously. So, all right. So, <laughs> what I'm seeing here is I'm seeing um, uh, beans. And what kind of is that? Like a navy bean, or is that a what kind of bean is that? You see a navy bean, a white navy bean, a small one. Mm-hmm. Okay. That gives it the. Okay. And corn. Samp. And uh -huh. uh, okay. Yep. And then the let's see. No, is that. What is that, potato? That's a lima bean. Oh, oh a giant lima bean. Lima bean. Mm -hmm. Large lima bean. Oh. Wow. Mm -hmm. And then there's uh, little pieces of pork, mm -hmm. uh, of ham in here. You know, and, smoke uh, shoulder like you do the um, um, boiled dinner. Right. So a boiled dinner. So what, I, what we would do is it also helps to um, stretch your food budget for the mm -hmm. week. So we'd have a boiled dinner one day, we'd take all of the smoked shoulder off of that and use it for sandwiches right. the next day. And then that bone, the second or third day, is for kachupa. Mm. Jay, you've got that to try this. That smells good. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. smells very it's good. It's not as warm as I would like it to be, I apologize. No, it should be warm. No, 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 no this, this is great. And then what we would do, we would call it raft. So the next day, my father liked, I like it soupier like this. If it was warmer, it would be more soup. Um, and then my father would take it and fry onions and and this in a frying pan. The next morning it would be drier and he would use it with linguisa, eat it with linguisa, and it would be his breakfast or his lunch. Fry it with mm -hmm. butter mm. and, and that, onion. That'll, that'll, that'll keep you going all, if it was all day long on a winter day, especially. Yeah, Jamie's missing out. I gotta get him. Yeah. So yeah, Bonnie, Bonnie, you're not you're not missing anything. It's okay. <laughs> that is pretty good. Oh, Bonnie, <laughs> no, this is this is this is fantastic stuff. And uh, Jamie, you gotta you gotta try this. That's important. This is over. basic. This is just the basic, the the bare, clean kachupa. And then anyone can add anything. You can add again, like I said, the kale or the um, beef if you'd rather it with beef and or. Um, you know, some people put paprika in it if you want to spicy it up a mm -hmm. little bit, okay? A little uh -huh. more pepper than this, a little more salt. We tried to get it as basic as we could because it is a different food. Yeah. You've got to really like it or not. And if we added too much different ingredients, you'd never be able to tell what you liked about it or what you did. Yeah. No, no, this is, this is fantastic. So here, Jamie, you can... Andy needs to find some Tupperware, put some in it, and <laughs> ship it to me overnight. Yeah, it's a, it's a stew, mm -hmm. but um, and the consistency would would stick with you for a long time. And uh, you know, I can imagine this also being made aboard a ship, uh, and being able to keep guys going for a very long time. Exactly. So well, huh. so that's great. And the thing is that this is different from island to island, and and even household to household. Exactly. Really. Exactly. So so it could be made with any different kinds of beans, or it could be fish instead of uh, instead of the smoke shoulder. It could be any number of different things. <laughs> I'm surprised we didn't run into something like this down in the Falklands as well. Wonder. A little mutton with it. 
Yeah, exactly. Well, we had we had something like that, but uh, it was uh, with some curry. But uh, yeah, I, th I think it's also the influence that um, a lot of different places, um, a lot of different cultures, kind of crossing mm -hmm. and being able to add to it. Mm -hmm. A place like the Falklands, for example, is pretty monocultural, and so you don't have that 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 mixing. That uh, um, and 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 also there are lots of different ingredients coming through as compared to the Falklands, which is some diddle dee and right. mutton. And that's about it. <laughs> and you were talking about National Geographic. I just got to throw in one little quick thing. The schooner Ernestina that's yeah. in the dock of New Bedford is, um, was last as a Cape Verdean um, taxi, if you mm -hmm. will. Mm -hmm. It was a packet trade ship. It's a good word. <laughs> Uh, yes, it's a, it was a, it was an island served as island taxi for a bit. It was owned by um, Mr. Mendes, Henry Mendes, a Cape Verdean, um, from the the fifties to the eighties or seventies. Um, but the piece about National Geographic, Bob Bartlett sailed her for a little bit during um, some of the Arctic years because it actually is a schooner ship that was built in 1894 in Essex, Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. And right. it was under the F.E.M. Morrissey. And just like you were talking, the explorers, the ex ex explorations that they did, you know, more famous for getting closest to the, to the North Pole and all the wonderful cod fishing that they did, you know, the Morrissey, the Bartlett's. And then to know the evolution, again, let's write history the right way. It, it, it then um, sunk in, in, in Oh, caught fire in, in New York, and they had to, to sink it to put it out and then raised it. And this, this modest man, Henrique Mendes, purchased her and started taking goods to Cape Verde and then bringing people, people back. back here. So she's like our Cape Verdean Mayflower. And look at the explorers. If you want to check history, and it, it was in the National Geographic in the bottle years. So we have a, a, a ship that was built, a schooner that was built and in Essex. Right. And yeah. it sits on the dock of, of, of New Bedford. Unfortunately, she hasn't been seaworthy in four or five years. She was a gift to Massachusetts from the Republic of Cape Verde in the mid-80s, and some of the folks there um, mm -hmm. helped bring her back here. And um, she's a national historic treasure. Um, we, and, and Andrew, shame on me, because that's the connection to the North Shore. There we go. There I was going to say Essex. Built in, built in Essex. So not shame on you, I thank Andrew for, for, for bringing me here, bringing us two mm -hmm. together, even if we never met this virtual conversation, helps us to correct or augment history. It's not only telling the right story, it's telling the whole story. Yeah. Well, thank you And you know, much. and I, I just wanted to say something really quickly. This is sort of tangential, but about the food that you're preparing and eating there without me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I have a very dear friend who grew up in East Boston. She's Sicilian American. And she has written and done photographs and done exhibits about how much our culture is carried on through cooking, meaning through women. Exactly. And we've had these conversations for years, but when she first told me about this, I thought, wow, I, I hadn't really quite thought of that. But so often the language goes away the religion goes away, other traditions go away, but the cooking does not go away. Yeah, yeah, that's and that, that's something that's passed down. And I can't remember who who said this now, but you know, the the, the love of food, uh, the most sincere love is the love of food. And uh, you know, people remember the things they grew up with, and they want they want to be able to recapture whatever they can. And the best way, oftentimes, to do that and to share that with family is simply by mm -hmm. cooking and, and passing those things down. Right, and we had the um, the the exhibit at the Brooks Academy Museum this past year on in Cape Verde in, in Harwich, and I. I I my minor is women's studies, so I have, and I'm actually the also the president currently of American Association of University Women of Massachusetts. So oh. I don't ever like to to show just the women's side of things mm -hmm. or 
to to put women in in the traditional roles but while we were showing all the other cultural norms the the, the food the fabric the, the 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 history the schooner and estina i really did put a little we we um cape verdean historical trust folks in myself put a little kitchen together um mm. a, a friend a, a, and co um committee member albert rainio brought in like a little corner hutch and a little tiny table mm -hmm. and we put things on it that people would remember not the of course the kachupa but a bag of samp was there and something else that their mother with the mortar and pestle that they mm -hmm. you know, a small one that they would use and the washboard and the reason i put that there not to have women look look tr so traditional a role but it's not only the food but the history that we would talk about at the table right. when they mm -hmm. didn't know how to write so much we learned our history over the kitchen table with the family there and eating good food. Yeah, stories and food go together very well. Right. Beautiful. Well, I've, I've got to wrap it up here. Um, that's uh, Thank you very much, Barbara. That's that's our uh, show. Thank you for coming in and, and talking with us and feeding us. Um, if you want to continue the conversation, um, find the Hit and Run History fan page on Facebook and be sure to like us. There you can find links to this podcast, links to the book, um, to everything that we've mentioned. Um, as well as the photos and videos uh, and travel from around the world. Um, as a bonus to those of you who live on the Mid or Lower Cape, you can catch the video of this podcast on Channel 99. You can also follow us and follow the story of the Columbia Expedition, First American Voyage Around the World, online, either at wgbh.org slash history, or on YouTube or on iTunes as a free podcast, um, You can uh, free video podcast. Um, you can subscribe to us on, for this audio podcast on iTunes as well. This helps others discover us and raise our profile and make a better show. Just go to the iTunes store and search for Hit and Run History. And please be sure to rate the show and leave a comment. Our audio producer is Jay Sheehan and our video producer is Jamie Horton. For Bonnie Hurd-Smith, Jay Sheehan, Jamie Horton, and the rest of the Hit and Run History crew, I'm Andrew Buckley. Thanks for listening and we'll talk again soon.